In this episode of the podcast, we meet Steven Saltstein, CEO at Force Wealth, a community of investment-oriented family offices, foundations, and endowments, and ultra-high net worth individuals located in New York City. Steven is an experienced partner with demonstrated success in the financial services industry. He's skilled in corporate development, capital raising, investor awareness, mergers and acquisitions, startups, marketing, and corporate finance. Um, so Steven, good to see you again. I know we've been chatting for a little bit. Yeah, um, so what's up? I said, good morning. Yeah. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Doing well. So, um, you know, just really happy to have you here. And I'm also happy that it's a Friday. It's the end of the week. Um, Me too. So what do you got planned for the weekend? Well, it's the Jewish holiday. It's the Jewish okay. New Year. Um, so I'm going to cast off all my sins mm-hmm. and start the new year by, you know, sinning again. It's <laughs> a good way to start. Uh, and you, you guys are in Florida, right? No, no, I'm in New York. You're in New York. Okay, yeah, got it. But yeah. some of your team is in, uh, in Florida, aren't they? Um, uh, we have one um, guy who's uh, a business development professional. He's in Florida. Yeah. Some, uh, we, and we're all over the place. Mostly mm-hmm. New York, though. The, the bulk of the team is New York. Got it. Okay, great. Well, hey, you know, love to uh, kick this off. Um, you know, and as you know, we just kind of keep it casual and uh, have just a fun, stimulating discussion. So maybe we can um, start by just having you introduce yourself and tell you a little bit about your story and um, sure. how you navigated to Force Wealth. I think you're the founder of Force Wealth as well, right? I am. Yeah. Yes. So let's uh, let's hear that story of how you kind of founded Force Wealth. And I know you spent some time at a family office as well. So I'd love yeah. to touch on that also. Yep. Sure, sure. So um, let's see. Uh, started uh, my career on Wall Street working for a family office. And mm-hmm. essentially we source structured, negotiated and closed about a billion dollars in transactions. This is in the uh, mid nineties uh, into the two thousands. Yeah. Uh, and we were focused on uh, direct investments and secured lending, public mm-hmm. and private companies. Sure. Um, we've always been generalists uh, and I think that served us well. And coincidentally, it, it serves us very well in the family office space because Families are so diverse, um, yeah. you know, just by way of example, you know, we have the largest orange grower in the U.S. as one of our families. And we have a family that um, uh, has had the exclusive rights to ship uh, one of the top two brands out of Japan from mm-hmm. Japan to the U.S. since inception, since 1957. Yeah. They're, oh, interesting. They're one of the original Japanese reconstruction families. And, uh, you know, we have families that have made, you know, their money in real estate, et cetera. So mm-hmm. it's just really helpful uh, to um, be able to relate and have had experience in all those different industries because, you know, families are, um, you know, they are so diverse. So mm-hmm. uh, anyway, uh, so did that. And then off the back of that, I launched a hedge fund. So mm-hmm. I ran a hedge fund for about a decade. Yeah. Um, once again, uh, we did... Um, uh, direct investment, secured lending, and convertible ARB. Um, you know, that was great. And then in 2012, was sitting around a table um, trying to think to myself, you know, where is the next great pool of allocation going to come from? And I mm-hmm. thought, well, I had worked for a family office. It's probably going to be uh, these folks. I saw, I felt that they were becoming more institutionalized. Mm-hmm. And uh, so built the largest network of, you know, transaction oriented or deal seeking family offices in the U.S. Yeah. Um, you know, and essentially what we do is we try to serve the families um, and, you know, we we bring them together to share intellectual capital, best practices, you know, meet best in class service providers. But mm-hmm. ultimately what we're doing is bringing them to the together in the context of co-investing and yeah. developing co-investment relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is our calling card um, and, and being transaction oriented. So, um, you know, that's kind of us in a nutshell. Yeah. And you made a good point about uh, being a generalist versus a specialist. That's something I actually mentioned last week. Uh, what are some of the pros and cons and dynamics of just being a specialist versus um, the generalist that you guys are? Well, uh, look, the pros are, I can kind of speak and, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of a statement of hubris, mm-hmm. so please forgive me, but I can kind of speak almost any industry, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, you see that there are uh, similar life cycles in industries and how they relate. For instance, um, uh, in biotech, right? I've invested in over 200 healthcare companies, med device, biotech, and pharma. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's always the same life cycle, which is, yeah, 
I have a client now, right? I have a client now. Um, they are super passionate and I'll tell you why the CEO actually, uh, was a, a successful dot com entrepreneur mm -hmm. and uh, his wife got colorectal cancer and um, he became hellbent on using data and algorithms uh, to cure um, colorectal cancer. And he, you know, he's, he's at the seed stage and he's starting yeah. a biotech. And um, so, you know, if, if you take the, a seed stage biotech mm -hmm. and then you also look at and invest in you know, let, let's say, you know, uh, biotechs that are further along, let's say phase one, right? That means mm -hmm. they've done their safety data or into phase two, that life cycle, like once they're in phase two, phase one, phase two, a lot of times, if they really have something, right? If there's a signal there, a human signal, mm -hmm. and you know, that you've shown early success, they're going to get bought by large pharma. Okay. Yeah. Now the same exact life, si uh, life cycle you can find in mining. Mm -hmm. Okay. Where you can have someone who says, you know what? I think that there's gold, you know, in this area, I'm going to go stake it. They literally rent a helicopter. They're dropping stakes out of the, hel the helicopter and say, you know, this is my area, right? They, they get the rights to it. They start doing testing. They, they have to obviously go through all the government approvals, et cetera. They start building it up before you know it, you know, they have a mine and, and they're pulling gold out of the ground. And you know, what's going to happen is the majors are going to come in and, and buy it. And so you, it, you see that, cycle in almost every industry. I think it's, I think the corollary is quite inter uh, interesting. Yeah. So being a generalist and being able to identify things like that, that's mm -hmm. quite helpful. What hurts sure. is what's not great about being a generalist is at least in my business, right? I'm trying to get people funded. There's mm -hmm. no question in my mind, the more, you know, the more detail, you know, mm -hmm. the, 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 you know, I can't tell you how many times I thought to myself, you know, you know, wow, I, I wish I was an, um, uh, an electronics engineer because I'm trying to close a uh, semiconductor capital equipment deal. Yeah. Well, I wish I knew more about this, but I, you know, but I just don't. So, you know, <laughs> we, we know enough to kind of uh, have the conversations, open the doors. Uh, but we also I, I, look, so I don't know enough to, to, you know, tell you what's a good semiconductor capital equipment company versus a bad one. But um, we know enough to bring the, the right people to the table and let them figure it out. Yeah. And when you guys bring the right people to the table, is it usually only founders that are looking to uh, get capital or do you guys also help uh, funds at all? Oh, yeah. We do uh, uh, so many different uh, sure. um, you know, instruments, but mm -hmm. uh, real estate funds, so yeah. seed stage VC, uh, private equity hedge, yeah. um, all every kind of private company you can imagine. Mm -hmm. We work with public companies. Sure. We started a public company business about a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. And you know what we said to ourselves was, uh, hey, uh, we've been successful at raising capital. And that's the hardest thing to do on Wall Street. And oh, if sure. we built a rigorous and repeatable process that has been successful in doing the hardest thing on Wall Street, mm -hmm. uh, we should be able to uh, really be able to give a public company a platform to tell their story. And then let the family offices or ultra high net worths uh, make the decision as to whether or not they want to buy the stock in the open market. Yeah. But it's just kind of lower hanging fruit. So, mm -hmm. you know, another thing we, we just did a, a deal with the largest investment bank in Israel, where uh, we are helping them um, essentially market uh, larger um, real estate opportunities and uh, public private companies that have debt loads of, 400 million or, uh, and north can list that debt on the Tel Aviv stock exchange. Uh, and it essentially gets equity treatment. It trades like equity. And oh, interesting. So how does it convert into equity from debt? Well, what they get is um, the advantage. The big advantage over there is ratings arbitrage. Mm -hmm. Meaning, you know, if something has, let's say, a, a triple B rating here, it'll, because it's US based, it'll get a much higher rating over there. Yeah. And therefore the um uh the debt is cheaper and okay. so and so they will you know th they'll be able to borrow more so they'll have a higher mm -hmm. ltv loan to value and they'll be able to uh it'll be cheaper sure got it and maybe you can walk through the differences with fundraising when you're an entrepreneur versus a fund manager right so what are the you know because you're helping these people get funded you know what are you noticing that's just kind of the biggest hurdle or difference? Um, Cause they've got to be just two different 
dynamics, right? When you're just to be clear, your question is the difference between raising capital as a private company versus raising capital as a fund. Yeah. Like an, you know, raising money as an entrepreneur, Hey, you know, I'm going, I want to start this colorectal bio biotech company versus, Hey, I'm a new hedge fund. I'm looking to raise a hundred million. Uh, what are kind of, you know, in your, in your experience, what are the kind of the different difference, uh, the differences that you see between both? You know, I will say, I think the challenges are very similar. Okay. I don't it. think there are a huge number of differences. Okay. I mean, you know, the one glaring difference is that, um, a fund is an LP structure. And so that if you're going to invest in an early stage fund, mm-hmm. your capital is intertwined with other LPs. Yeah. And uh, a lot of family offices don't like that. So what they'll do is they want to sidestep the LP structure and they'll ask the portfolio manager if they like the strategy, can you set up an SPV? Can you set yeah. up a, you know, a, a, a separate vehicle for me sure. so that I don't have to deal with, you know, a possibly, uh, a possibly litigious LPs, um, you know, in this basket, yeah. and, but I can still benefit from, from, you know, the great work that you're yeah. doing. I, I'll, I'll tell you my experience. People, you know, people now don't even want to do the SPV. They're like, hey, if you can introduce me, uh, we want to co-invest. Um, so I've talked to a few managers and a few family I, offices right. and they're like, you know what? Because I think that was what it was before. It's like, hey, you know what? Let's just do an SPV so we don't have to invest in your seven-year fund. But now, you know, the family offices, they're just hiring a couple analysts and they're like, look, you know, we have our venture harm for our family office and they'll hire a couple analysts. Just right. like, they're going to do the like, direct investments yeah. themselves. And they want to be, I, I, the term is direct to cap table. They want to, they want to see their name on the cap table um, yeah. as opposed to going through another vehicle. Cause they just don't want to pay. I mean, I think there's pros and there's, there's benefits to an SPV. If it's a very hot exclusive deal, like you're paying to play, right. You're trying to get into the deal. Um, but it also depends on, how you're collaborating with a fund manager. Sometimes I feel like the fund managers, uh, they want to build a relationship and you know, it's a long game. So they're like, Hey, you know what, why don't we co-invest for some time, see if there's some synergy and then, Hey, why don't you let us do the heavy lifting? We'll just spin up SPVs and you discharge us for your hard work. But um, I I feel like it's how you set those expectations in the beginning. I don't know. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean um, you know, it's funny. Uh, I certainly find that family offices, are more attracted to LB structures if they offer co-investment outside of that. Okay, so the option, so you could do the LP because you have access, you're just integrating into the fund, but you're saying, uh, how would they get the optionality? It's just like an additional vehicle if they want to allocate directly also alongside the fund? I mean, essentially there's a parapassu allocation. So, you know, let's just take simple numbers. If you were to put $10 million into a fund, a lot of families won't do it unless they can get, let's say, a 10% co-investment right on any mm-hmm. new deal on top of their LP investment. Okay, that's good. So it's it's a little bit of a cherry on top of the uh, the Sunday because yeah. they get they can they're doing the fun, but they also want to kind of just independently have additional access exactly. um, to cherry because they may want to allocate a little more to another specific deal, especially yeah. if it's like a really hot deal. Right. Right. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Got it. Yeah. And when you guys are looking at deals. You know, you kind of were giving the example of the healthcare deal and the uh, the uh, the mining company. Um, what do you guys also do some analysis on the potential upside, or do you guys just really connect the people together? Or do you yeah, also you know, kind of- we we do uh, basic due diligence just to make mm-hmm. sure you know all the boxes are checked. Um, but you know, the real due diligence, without a doubt, is done. They don't even. I mean, to be honest, they have their own staffs. They yeah. they have they they will rely on outside accounting firms. Mm-hmm. They rely on outside legal, et cetera, et cetera. They mm-hmm. frankly don't care what I think, yeah. <laughs> which is fine. I get it, you know? So, yeah. uh, you know, uh, but and so much of it depends on management too. Sure. And when you, um, I think one different uh, thing to keep in mind is with a fund, you know, if you're doing a, you know, seven to 10 year fund, you have to work with a fund administrator and work with an auditor. So it's just, I feel like there's a lot more upfront cost. Um, versus like if you're, you know, an early stage startup, you work with a lawyer and get like a startup package. Um, and I think they do these fixed fee, you know, some of the great lawyers that do these fixed fee packages where it's like five grand and we'll set you up with like a C, you know, series a package. And, you know, they do all the fund formation documents. I mean, the startup formation documents. And, um, I feel like the pricing to get started is more expensive with, with starting a fund. Um, and I think that's why, I don't know if you've been reading the news about like the rolling funds, like AngelList, you know, now they have this thing called a rolling fund where you just pay AngelList like 10 grand 
And then um, th they have like this audience of uh, accredited investors. They can just actually invest in your syndicate. So wh where do you think the future is heading, I guess, for fund managers uh, with, with all these SPVs and kind of the rolling funds and syndicates? You know, it's funny. Yesterday I was on the phone with a family office, like a $6 billion family. Mm -hmm. And um, we were old friends and, uh, you know, they, long story short, as they said to me, look, we, we want to buy now, we're looking to buy non-correlated companies um, with EBITDA between five and 50 million, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you stick a multiple on that and they're spending, yeah. I don't know, let's say 200 to 500 million to make these acquisitions. And it's a big family. So they have the dry powder mm -hmm. and they can do it. Yeah. Um, I will say, look, you know, you're talking to a guy who remembers the, the 87 real estate crash really mm -hmm. well. I mean, yeah. I've, I've been through some cycles, the dot com, you know, long term capital, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Um, I, I, I think there's a reckoning coming. I think mm -hmm. that, um, uh, you know, folks, and I don't blame them, but folks are, are the pendulum has swung too far to the point where people think they could do it themselves. Mm -hmm. And as you know, living on both sides of the table, I mean, I, I was a fund manager yeah. and uh, I now like work with all the allocators very closely. And I, you know, there, there's something to be said for specialization, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if you're a, a family office and you're on Fifth Avenue in New York city, mm -hmm. Um, uh, uh, you hey, Steven, I think I accidentally muted you. Hey, Steven, can you hear me? I think I accidentally muted you. How's that? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, apologies. <laughs> but no worries. Well, <laughs> Look, what I was saying, I don't know where I lost you, but what I, was, what I was basically saying is there's something to be said for um, being an expert in your area. And what I was mm -hmm. saying, look, yeah. if you're a real estate family on Fifth Avenue, mm -hmm. you are never going to get the benefit of late night discussions that go on on Sand Hill Road where they really, you know, people talk about, oh, I'm allocating to, you know, this tech company or that dot com or whatever yeah. it might be. But, you know, really, at the end of the day, you get the true knowledge, you know, late, late at night when someone's like, oh, and by the way, I really love yeah. this. Sure. Or it's kind of like, hey, you know, I know this this private company there. I really understand their, this is a, you know, real example that I'm not going to name, but um, this is, um, this is a really interesting company. And we know about this tech platform that they're going to be launching that's going to transform um, financial services, you know, but right. you only know that if you kind of talk to the developer team. Um, I know some people that have like gone to school at Stanford with like some founders of some specific company. So, you know, because they spend time in the dorm room together, you know, they, they'll be texting each other other things. And that's uh, some insight that you're not going to have as a, as a family all the time. Maybe you do. Um, because I think, you know, this is another thing to talk about. Where, what is the demographic of the families? Are you start, because now we're looking at like the generations of the families, yeah. you know, the fourth, the, you know, the third and fourth generations. So are you starting to see more of the Silicon Valley people now start their own single family offices and have them start thinking about it? Or is it, uh, are you still seeing kind of the older um, generation? Right? You already is still the older. It's the, let's Got just it. say one, the first generation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, um, uh, you know, we, we see G2 and G3. I, look, mm -hmm. you see G2 and G3, especially around uh, ESG. Yeah. Which, um, you know, impact investing. What, so, you know, one thing that uh, I think is great, and uh, I'm just so happy to hear, is how well ESG has done through mm -hmm. this downturn, through yeah. COVID. Sure. And, you know, it's really proved out a bunch of those models. I, I, I You know, I couldn't be happier to hear mm -hmm. that. Yeah, we've, you know, in our, in our platform, we've actually opened up a new vertical just focusing on impact. Um, we're learning more about ESG. So there was actually someone in my platform earlier um, that actually worked in public markets for ESG. And now we're looking at, uh, you know, ESG that can possibly provide some type of private, um, you know, equity type of returns. But, you know, we're looking at, we're, we're learning about ESG, uh, doing clean tech and impact. And um, you're right. I think, you know, I've been just getting a lot of demand for that specialization. Yeah. So that's why we kind of started, you know, having more of an open mind. And I'll say like the last um, set of people that we worked with in our platform, we, we had a really good, you know, source of deal flow. 
And uh, one thing that I'm learning now is, you know, with the sector specifically, which is clean tech, there's like a clean tech 1.0 and then there's like a clean tech 2.0 right. where um, you can do impact and there's no return. But now I feel like there's a little more of a demand for financial return as well, along yeah. with, you know, ESG and impact. And I don't know if you're seeing that as well. Are you, are you starting to see people try to do both where they have the social impact plus they're trying to get financial returns? Oh, definitely. I yeah. mean, that, I, I feel like that's what the space is all about. Right. Yeah. And, um, uh, the other thing we're seeing, and I, I, I don't know, I, this is a new trend for me. I don't know if it's mm-hmm. a new trend for you. We're seeing charities launch their own funds, right? Interesting. They, they're basically saying like, look, we kill ourselves every year mm-hmm. to raise money to, you know, once again, let's, let's say it's the American cancer society. Mm-hmm. Um, so to, to help, um, promising drugs, get FDA approval and save mm-hmm. people's lives. But yeah. the problem is it's a shrinking ice cube, yeah. right? And if we keep giving the money away, away without any benefit, we're not helping anyone at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think a really interesting trend is we're seeing a lot of, you know, well-respected national charities launch their own funds, Yeah, you know, either getting royalty streams where, mm-hmm. so therefore they can, you know, have ongoing uh, income from it mm-hmm. or uh, they're getting coupons. And, yeah. um, you know, once again, I, I, I think that's a very positive thing. Is that kind of is that kind of what Bill Gates is doing with the Gates Foundation? Because that's also kind of like a profitable business, right? Or is that different? I don't know. I don't. Okay. I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't know if he's doing it or not. Yeah. I, you know, I, I know that uh, there, there's a bunch of like uh, charities around SIDS, around yeah. Alzheimer's, around cancer, mm-hmm. all launching these funds, basically saying, you know, because, you know, it's, I spent, I've been in Atlanta, I've spent a lot of time with the uh, American Cancer Society. Yeah. And um, uh, you know, they have been responsible, I think, for over 450 approved drugs wow. throughout there, you know, and that's, you're not, you're the best, most prestigious universities in the world don't mm-hmm. have a track record like that. Wow. And yeah. they should, you know, they should benefit off that. Sure. Well, I, I feel like they should, you know, if they're going to raise a fund, hopefully that capital can accelerate some of those drugs, right? Because I mean, if you're saying, yeah, I mean, if they're able to do that much, because what you're saying now is you, are you saying that the way that they're operating now, these charities, and I'm still learning this stuff, right? But it's, it's a 501C. And then with the 501C, it's like donor, it's like donor capital, I guess, yeah. right? And then they use the money to really just give it away through the foundation. They give it away yeah. and they never see it again. At least yeah. like if you take the, once again, I, I'm sorry to keep going back to this mm-hmm. one charity, but if you, if you take the American Cancer Society mm-hmm. and they're responsible for 450 drugs that have been approved, I mean, can you imagine back in the day if they would have just said, hey, look, just give us a 1% royalty, yeah. right? If you don't get approved, fine, we don't get anything. Mm-hmm. But if you do, that, they would probably be 30 times as large as they are now. Sure. You know, based yeah. on the revenue off those royalties. And what are these guys, so these chair, you know, so the American Cancer Society, you know, how much of a fund are they looking to raise? And you don't have to tell me um, about American Cancer Society, but if that's private, but in general, like how much capital do they need and what are they using that money for? Is it for more research or is it yeah. technology? What are they deploying they're, they're, the capital? They're using, into? they're using it to fund promising, um, you know, promising drugs in this case and take them through FDA approval. Got it. Um, so kind of like a life science fund. It's exactly like yeah, a got it. Yeah, because a lot of universities are already doing that. One of the one of the mentors in my program, he's um, he used to be a medical doctor, and now he's at Oklahoma State's uh, Life Science Fund, and that's all they do. They kind of, I mean, I don't, I'm not the expert in it because I feel for me it's just a long tail. Uh, it could be, you know, by the time you discover the drug, the fund is, you know, the fund has kind of completed its cycle. Um, right. So I feel like you need you need a lot of capital. So I mean, these guys are probably you know, raising a couple hundred million dollars, probably at least, right? To kind of get well, it through. I don't think it's, don't no? think it's going to be that big. Nah, okay. listen, it's all a matter of ratio, right? Let's mm-hmm. say they only raised 25 million, mm-hmm. but, you know, they put a half a million dollars into 50 different drugs. Sure. Um, you know, hopefully the, the old model is invest in these companies, invest in these drugs, and the money's gone. Mm-hmm. It seems logical to me that the new model is, if they're successful, we get a return on it and then hopefully yeah. keep doing it. And what's the instrument? Is it equity or is it debt? What are they, what are they actually deploying yeah, as far not as a the... simple, it's just straight equity generally. It's just straight equity. That's okay. And it's I'm mostly, sure mostly seed stage. I'm seed sure state. They... If it's 500 K it's probably seed, seed to series A probably as a co I, I also think it's interesting because I think these charities, first of all, they have such history and they're also like, they're really part of these, you know, research and development fabrics. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, I think that they have, like, I, I think that they can get allocations um, where a regular person or even a regular family office couldn't yeah. because they're just like so interwoven into the whole fabric mm -hmm. of research and development. And who are the typical LPs for um, like a, like a charities fund? Is it usually institutions or is it just a syndicate of other family offices? Well, I'm not that much of an expert on okay. it, but yeah. I believe, I, I believe that they're just carving off capital rate or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, donations raised. Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, and, and putting a portion into these funds to see if they, you know, hopefully can extend the lives of these funds. Got it. Okay, that's great. Well, you know, I think a fun topic to talk about as well, which you're alluding to is, um, tell me what can, you know, some examples of some difficult clients and how, how, um, you know, that difficulty can be managed. You know, right now I have a client um, that can't get out of their own way, meaning yeah. they have a good business. Mm -hmm. uh, they're good at presenting, but for whatever reason, they think that it benefits them to play games. And so, mm -hmm. you know, we do Zoom calls, right? So we might have like yeah. five people on a Zoom call where they're, where they're telling their story. Mm -hmm. And um, at the end of the Zoom call, they say, oh, and by the way, we're full up uh, on this round. You can't get in this round. And they think that they are creating some amount of, you know, FOMO, what, sorry, some type of FOMO, like saying that it's uh, the rounds completely full. Yeah. And then yeah. They, they think people are going to call them and beg. And it's just sure. like, and I keep telling the client, listen, you're wasting your time. Like you're no one's falling yeah. for this. And, they, and it's a great little company too. They just can't get out of their own way. So mm -hmm. I think, I, I think the biggest mistake we make when mm -hmm. working with clients is letting the clients run the process. Sure. But we've been doing this since 2012. Um, we have made every mistake possible in the book mm -hmm. and, you know, I, it's not, it's far from perfect, but yeah. I think, you know, we are constantly trying to polish this diamond. And so that's one mistake we make. And I think yeah. you know, a mistake, uh, the, a lot of times clients make is, um, they just get too cute for their own good. Mm -hmm. And what do you, and what are some things that you guys help them with? So we can, because there's actually some people here that. Uh, might might be eventually interested in either uh, raising money for a company or or a fund, but um, I guess with them, you know, what did they take over or overstep that maybe you should have handled? Is it like the presentation? Is it just kind of the pitch? Or do you, and do you guys coach them as well? Yeah. Um, and give them feedback on you know how to pitch before they actually talk to a fund uh, to, to LPs or or uh, investors. So, uh, you know, what happens is uh, in, the, in this age of Zoom, mm -hmm. uh, because Zoom is still a new technology for everyone and, you know, we're still like getting used to it as, as the standard bearer, uh, we usually have to go through two rehearsals just on mm -hmm. the technical front. Hey, yeah. this is how you share your screen. You know, this is where, the, this is where you'll see the questions, et cetera. And oh, when you go through that, they run through their presentation. Mm -hmm. and, and by doing that, we give them feedback. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of times what we find, here's another thing is that, uh, especially the larger, more established funds, right? Like if you, I, we probably both know the most blue chip mm -hmm. fund in Boston. Okay. was a client of ours. Yeah. And, uh, they were so used to talking to, uh, I don't know, the state of Wisconsin, uh, the state of California, the, the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund. Yeah. Uh, they had no idea how to speak the language of family offices. And it's what's, more, what's the biggest difference? Qualitative. It's so yeah. much more qualitative and emotional with family offices wow. than it is, uh, you know, with these state pension funds. And, yeah. um, and, and the other thing is, if you're talking to the state pension funds, okay, mm -hmm. you can put together one presentation yeah. and give it 50 times. And you, you don't, they all generally have the same asset allocation, you know, thought process and need, yeah. right? It's not the same with family offices mm -hmm. and you need to know their, you know, you need to know their, um, their, their hot buttons and their wants yeah. and desires and things of that nature. What's going I on? I mean, I, I totally agree with you. I've had like literally three discussions with, uh, with three families about this. And, um, there's one guy that's at a family office and, um, him and I have just been met because I'm not raising money. Right. So I'm just, I really just love building friendships and, you know, catching up with people. So I texted him and he's like, Hey, we should go for a walk in Central Park. Um, like nobody's ever asked me to go for a walk. You know, I mean, normally it's kind of like, hey, let's do a Zoom. Let's kind of go through your deck. Right. Uh, send me your financial model. 
Um, but you know, you're right. I think with families, you're really building, you know, they don't really invest in funds. Um, they just invest in who they trust. That's well, my, my experience. A thousand percent. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. Mm-hmm. You know what, when I ran my fund, uh, that there was a hard lesson for me because yeah. I remember in the beginning, we would have better numbers than people. We would have mm-hmm. better terms, every, everything. And I would always say to myself, like, why are those guys getting the allocation? We're yeah. not like, we have better everything, but you know what? They just mm-hmm. like the better. <laughs> I mean, I heard, I heard some news about Bridgewater. I mean, I, and I don't quote me cause I don't have the numbers, but they're not performing that well, but they, you know, like I think in their lowest amount of performance, uh, I think last year, or the year before they raised like a $5 billion fund, you know, so right. uh, because it's Bridgewater, you know, yeah. part of it is really the way you, uh, portray your brand and how you, you know, kind of position yourself in the community. But um, I feel like their IR person really invested deeply in the relationships and getting to know people. And it's not, it's not like in sales where you're like schmoozing people. Um, Cause I feel like some of these families too, what I've learned is some of them used, are past entrepreneurs, right? So they can kind of, they can tell the, they can tell the poker face if you're kind of uh, trying to BS them or trying to really oversell. But I think if you really just invest in, um, just like built, like this is what I've learned. My, my big takeaway in the last few months, just from talking to so many people is, um, you know, friendships first and, um, you know, not even having any transactions. Cause I think if you have a friendship, you'll just kind of work with people that you enjoy working with. Um, there's something else about that. And you make a great yeah. point. You know, we just got a referral from a client. It's a public company. Mm-hmm. And this is, uh, you know, a guy that, uh, we've really had to put our back into to do a good job for him. We've worked hard for him. And, um, the thing not even uh, making the introductions. The thing that ended up being so important to him was just our honest feedback. Yeah. Like he's, he asked me, he said, Hey, we're thinking about uh, getting this celebrity to advertise our product. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then he said to me, Oh, and we're also thinking about changing our name. Mm-hmm. And uh, because, you know, the company's grown. So the name does, it's so niche. It doesn't represent yeah. everything that they do. Sure. And, and I just gave my honest feedback. And I think, you know, he's surrounded by folks that are just yes men, so to speak. And I just said, I would not do this. I think it's a mistake. And I I think that's what got us the referral. People Mm -hmm. want honesty. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, So when you say, you know, going back to that example of the families and the pension funds. So usually when you talk to the pension funds and endowments, uh, what are they looking for? And then with the families in your experience, how should, because some of the people in this uh, channel are emerging managers. So yeah. uh, what is some of the etiquette that they should think about, right? They're going to, they're about to talk to like uh, the New York State's teacher's pension fund. What are some things that they should think about? And then with a the family, how do they kind of go about that? So if you're going to talk to New York State or any of these states, the thing you have to get to is the guy that's running the emerging, the emerging manager book, okay. right? If you're talking to New York State, they're going to rely on Mercer. They're going to rely mm-hmm. on any of those consultants out there. Yeah. And they're essentially never going to look at your stuff unless Mercer gives it the thumbs up. So when now, you say Mercer, is that a, is that a gatekeeper? Yeah, it's a consultant. There's a, okay. there's a whole, whole... That's what I've heard of. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's good education for the group here. So usually when you're looking to raise money for a fund, there's usually some type of middle person that comes in as the gatekeeper that yeah. says yes or no, right? And from what I've learned that person is paid to say no, right? If they, if they keep saying no, they keep their job, right? That's right. what I've learned. I think, well, so. it's generally, I mean, you know, yeah. generally I a thousand percent agree with you. Um, yeah. You know, they're just paid not to make mistakes, but they're yeah. not paid to really make returns. Sure. So, but here's what I would say to folks that are emerging mm-hmm. managers out there. Yeah. Every state has an emerging manager book. You need to find that person. And yeah. I think, uh, that that person has a lot, there's much smaller books. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know what New York state's pension is, but let's say it's 80 billion. I, it's probably bigger than that. I have no idea what it is. Right. Um, there's a guy that's literally running like of the 80 billion, he's running 250 million to allocate yeah. to managers. That's sure. the person you're looking for. Yeah. And that's the and person it, I think you can make a relate, have a, a one-on-one relationship with and sidestep the Mercers uh, of the world. And then, so you're saying to kind of treat, the pension fund, the relation, try to kind of build the family office type of relationship with the pension fund, with that person. Um, And I guess with the, with the emerging managers, how often do they run? Are they usually like once every year? And you there's like a formal application process too. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you got to apply. And what are they, you know, in your, in your experience, what are they looking for with an emerging manager? Like what, what stands out? Because there's tons of emerging managers now. 
Sure. And, um, you know, I, I also think that, uh, like, for instance, uh, three, four, five years ago, I would say you were crazy if you were an ESG fund that mm -hmm. you think you're going to get an allocation from state of Rhode Island or yeah. you know, whatever it is. Uh, you know, I, I think now that they are, they're open to much more niche strategies. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I, I, I think those are, those are certainly opportunities that weren't available. Yeah. Uh, what are they looking for? You know, it's funny. I have a family office, one of the biggest in New York City, and uh, they come out of a, a, a huge fund. They start the guy mm -hmm. started a huge fund, um, and it's like a twelve billion dollar family. And uh, but this, there's three people who are uh, in charge of allocating the money. There's the CIO, the guy who started the fund, and his wife. And they all, mm -hmm. they make all the decisions for the family office allocations. Interesting. Um, and, but I, what I say to the CIO, cause I'm friendly with her, I say, mm -hmm. yeah, but isn't this guy like, doesn't he have sympathy for an emerging manager? Cause he was an emerging manager yeah. 25 years ago. He, and she says, yeah, he does. She says he gets it. As a matter of fact, she said to me, he struggled for a decade for 10 years before he got traction, he never gave up. And that's why he got traction. Yeah. And you know, that's why he's a $12 billion family mm -hmm. office. Yeah. So keep, you know, people are people, they're just putting their, their pants mm -hmm. on one leg at a time. You got to keep that in mind. Yeah. So I just want to get back to one point on the emerging manager, the person who's in charge of allocating state pension fund, find that person, try yeah, to yeah. make a relationship with them, mm -hmm. get them on LinkedIn, try to grab coffee with them. I mm -hmm. absolutely would do that. Yeah, and I think you have to take that thought process not only through that, but to sovereign wealth funds. Yeah, I'll tell you another you know great pool of allocation is fire and police. I mm -hmm. fire and police are much more; those pension funds are much yeah. more flexible, you know, than certainly than state pension funds. Have and, you heard of? Uh, have you heard? Do you know who Anthony Pompliano is? No, I mean so, so I this guy was a like a Bitcoin uh, like expert, and what he would do is like literally every day he would write this newsletter about like Bitcoin and crypto and the news. And um, it just, he did that. And then he had the podcast and he just created so much content and such an audience. I think in like five months, he got like, like 200,000 followers on Twitter. And then you would just start seeing him on CNBC and like all over the news. But like yeah. he did that like literally organically. And like, I actually got a little inspired by him. Um, and that's what actually pushed me to start doing podcasts. But, um, but he, he was one of the first managers, I think, that raised, I think, like $25 million institutional from like the police pension fund. And like if you and he really convinced them to uh, look into crypto as like a small allocation. And um, I think I you say this because I have a company that's a gold mine. They're mm -hmm. a gold mine in, in you know, the Western U.S., and I just we did a, a Zoom call for them yesterday, and mm -hmm. I just found out that their head of IR has built a, a community of three hundred thousand uh, followers, all dedicated to gold yeah. mining. And I and I'm super impressed, and I yeah. completely agree with you. I think you are spot on, yeah. and you know you got to do things like that. To be honest, I'm scratching my health, my head, saying, "Well, how do I do that?" Yeah, because. <laughs> We have 170,000 investors and allocators in our yeah. database. Mm -hmm. I don't have a community like that. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think you definitely need a social strategy um, at some point. The only problem is it's not, there's no shortcut. It's a lot of work. And um, right. this guy would get up. I mean, Anthony, he would get up at like 5 a.m. in the morning and write up like a, a post. And nobody's going to, everybody's not going to do that. They're not going to get up and, you know, write a post. Right. Um, obviously, it's, it's tougher when you're like, you know, married and you got kids, right? Because you have to like block, time box your day. I know me personally, it's like, after like 5 p.m. It's like I, I have to kind of like have a family time time box, yeah. you know, so it's uh, but you just you know, look if you want to get it done, you still get it done. You just work around it. Right. And you just kind of change your change yeah. your uh, change your schedule yeah. around that. Um, let's talk about IR. We got about 15 minutes. So what are some of the characteristics of a good investor relations person? And for the audience, you know, like I said, some of these people are emerging managers want to raise a fund at some point. So, you know, could, could reach out to you later, but you know, I think if you're raising a fund, you're doing your own IR in the beginning. Right. Yeah. So uh, what makes a good emerging manager, the ones that you've seen that have raised these hundred million dollar funds, $50 million funds, what are they doing? That's kind of a pattern that you're seeing that's successful beyond just like, Hey, I'm making, I'm building a relationship. Any other attributes that, um, that you think are helpful to, to be aware of? Yeah. So I, I, it's funny. I go back to when I ran my hedge fund, I, mm -hmm. I go back to public companies. 
And, you know, if if I I would uh, interview management teams all the time, and I Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how often I would see the exact same public company, you know, doing the exact same thing, same industry. And, you know, one stock was $10 and one stock was $1.50. And there's no question in my mind, the difference was that the CEO bothered to get on the phone, get on the road and, you know, talk to prospective investors whether they had good news or bad news, mm-hmm. okay? And so my, what I would say a good IR strategy is build your Rolodex and, you know, the best thing you could do is set expectations and exceed those expe- expectations. Yeah. But if you screw up and if you even have a bad quarter or something doesn't go right, that's fine. That's yeah. the best time to get on the phone and tell that person, this is what happened, this mm-hmm. is what went wrong, and this is how we're going to fix yeah. it. You, will get, you get so much more credit for doing that during the bad times than you do uh, when you're just coasting during the good times. That, that parallel is very similar to venture as well. So with COVID, I've had some portfolio companies reach out to me and, and just tell me the bad news. And um, I really like that. And I really yeah. appreciated that uh, they wanted to talk to me about that. And I kind of did some coaching with them and, and uh, gave them some of my thoughts, but um, I think you're right. I think, you know, LPs and uh, GPs, both who are allocating capital, right? They want to hear the bad news because they want to they want to help at the end of the day, right? Kind of like what you said with the um, the matriarch and the patriarch of that one family, right? The guy, you know, was an emerging manager, so he feels for these people. So right. I think you're right. You know, you want to hear the bad news as well. If you don't, I mean, I would be kind of a little uh, well, you know, turned off. Bad news that really builds the relationship. Yeah, it's. I, I mean, if, if you know, if anyone's on this phone and they want to raise a fund, you have to mm-hmm. say to yourself, "This is a marathon, not a sprint." Yeah. I'm in this for 10 years. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to, you know, and that, you know, that's what it takes. I mean, I'm sure you'll be successful before then, but that's got to mm-hmm. be your mindset. And, you know, 10 years, there's going to be a hell of a lot of bad news. And it's just a matter of, you know, the folks that treat uh, people with respect and, and are transparent are the folks that are going to carry the day. Yeah. I met a guy that has a $250 million fund. Uh, it's a venture fund and he's never done venture before. Um, and I was like, well, do you have any feed? Do you have any advice? And he's like, yeah, just, uh, you know, build relationships with the same few people for like 17 years. Um, so he's like, <laughs> right. so they just, they're just like his buddies. And I guess his friends did really well. And they're like, they all just gave him a couple million dollars and added up to 250. But he has no experience. Uh, out, like he, I don't think he's deployed the capital yet. I think he has wow. his big fun. Um, but he's like, yeah, you know, um, I might maybe take that a class or something. Really trustworthy guy. I think it's just, it's friendships. You could be a really horrible manager and, you know, still there's a lot of people that raise a lot of money, you know? Right. And, um, but I think, uh, but I think if you're smart, I feel like if you don't know how to allocate the capital, hire the right people to help you, right? Maybe hire like someone right out of Warburg Pincus and help you do some financial modeling, do the diligence and get people, I feel like that's what some of the athletes do, right? Because they don't, I feel, I'm not, I'm not imagining some of these basketball players, you know, sitting in front of Excel doing waterfall modeling, right? They're probably going to hire a private equity person to kind of model out the returns. And that's another question too. Um, Have you worked with any other uh, people outside of the normal (laughs) template, like any athletes, any celebrities? Have you seen, you do see that emerging too, just people wanting like different types of, personas now wanting to start their own fund that you didn't see maybe 10 years ago? Uh, I don't know. I, well, I don't know about that. I, I, I guess I wasn't, I'll tell you where I was going to go with it. Mm-hmm. I apologize. It's not answering your question, but yeah. Um, families own uh, major league sports franchises. Yeah. They own pieces in a lot of them. And mm-hmm. a lot of those folks are our families. Yeah. So like, I just got a call the other day saying, Hey, you know, we want to sell our $20 million piece of XYZ NBA team. Mm-hmm. Do you know anyone that wants to buy it? We get a lot of that. Now, I'm yeah. sorry I didn't answer your question, but that's. And is that usually in the structure of that? Is that usually like an SPV, or is it like actually these shares that they issue? How do they actually issue the ownership? Like, is it? It's just. Like you know a, what? I just put people together. I, I don't okay. get involved because our yeah. model, just to be clear, we don't mm-hmm. get a performance fee. Yeah, sure. We're only on a consulting fee, and yeah. so um, you know how the sausage is made, so to speak. I, I don't. I all my job is to put the right people together. And yeah. then I walk away. And I guess, yeah, well, I guess my question was, um, to answer my question, I guess if you can, is um, the, are you seeing the people that need to raise money change? 
Um, I think you answered it earlier though, when I was talking about like next gens, right? Cause you were just saying like, you're not seeing, you're not seeing a growth in like the next gens. Um, but like, just to take, to take that a little further, I was like, Oh, I wonder if you're seeing any more like athletes or celebrities now wanting to raise money or, um, or funds, but it sounds like not, but it's about the same. I, I talked to their handlers to be told. Okay. Got it. You know, I, well, I will say there's a couple NBA players uh, that had impact strategies that mm -hmm. I, that I actually think probably they're killing it right now during COVID. Like they were yeah. non-correlated strategies. Sure. And uh, I'm just really happy for them because that's awesome. They, you know, those strategies absolutely were all about social justice mm -hmm. and um, you know, they're, they're, they were in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Um, but generally not really. I don't know. Yeah. And you know, you were in the hedge fund space for some time. Um, you know, we got a couple minutes left, but I, you know, I was just curious about this. Are you seeing, what are you seeing with like just the technology um, as far as the quant hedge funds? Are you seeing a lot of those emerge more, um, you know, versus just the kind of the traditional hedge funds or um, yeah, I'm curious about that. Like kind of like the, Funny. You know, the Bridgewaters or the quant funds. Um, listen, I'm not, but maybe I yeah. don't, you know, maybe I don't troll in those waters. It's funny when it comes to tech, mm -hmm. I'm seeing very, uh, highly qualified uh, AI funds, okay, uh, with really really strong management teams. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm seeing um, uh, the few you know f funds that are focused on um, uh, the future of business things things of that nature. Yeah, I, I don't really for whatever reason we don't really get that many quant funds. I will say one thing, which is once again, family offices are qualitative, not quantitative. Yeah, sure. And when you, what's the best way for you to engage, you know, to make that connection? Is it, is it email or do you do like a zoom call or, you know, if you're a fund manager, right? Like how would you, what's the best way for you to kind of coach an emerging manager? Do you kind of, well, I, I think it was what you, repeatable process. Got it. And um, you know, so our process is relationship driven and data driven. Yeah. Okay. Sure. So our team, you know, we have about 500 close relationships mm -hmm. with family offices. Yeah where we're talking to them all the time and we know what they want. Yeah. But, you know, we're only a team of 10 people. We can't know that many families intimately. It's, it's yeah. pretty much tops out at, you know, 500. Um, and then from there, you know, I have a full-time data scientist on staff. We have a data gathering team. Mm -hmm. You know, we are constantly uh, building our database, screening mm -hmm. it, uh, protecting it, and yeah. also uh, leveraging it and marketing to it. So that's, sure. how we, that's how we do it. Yeah, no, that's so really great. Data. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, this was really amazing. I really loved how Thank we talked you. about I, I really <laughs> Yeah. It. I really love talking about emerging managers and fundraising. It's very relative because um, there's people in my community that are looking to raise. Um, so I, I'll, I'll open it up. There's a, it looks like we got a pretty uh, nice group of people here. I guess anybody have any questions about um, just uh, raising capital? Or raising kids? Yeah. Raising kids. Uh, I don't think they have questions about that. <laughs> Uh, looks, I guess not, you know, like most people kind of like to listen in, but, um, you know, feel free to chime in. I could, I, oh, oh Deji, there we go. Awesome. Awesome. Hey, Steven, thank you so much, um, for the insights and the experience shared. Um, I'm actually based in the UK, so I've got two questions. Um, my heritage is from Nigeria. Um, so two questions, what appetite is there for, um, investments in emerging emerging countries like Africa yeah mm -hmm. one and secondly is your network of family offices also including networks in the UK Europe and if 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 so how do you then manage coordination for your operations so, yeah, you know, we're about two thirds U.S., one third international. And, you know, that's Europe, Asia, uh, Middle East, Africa. Um, look, uh, there's there's no question if you have a good strategy, no matter where it's based in the world, um, you can attract capital and get allocation. Um, there's a ton of, uh, you know, emerging geography allocators out there. Um, and the other thing I would say to you is, you know, if you're from Nigeria originally, uh, they have a massive sovereign wealth fund mm -hmm. and I would absolutely, that's the first door I would knock on if I were you. Last yeah. thing I'm, I'll say is in London, uh, there's a guy named Bill Johnston, Bill Johnson or Bill Johnston. He has a firm called family office council. I haven't spoken to him in a couple of years. He runs a good group. 
uh, that pre-COVID, they would always like come to the U.S. and do, um, he would arrange like museum tours at MoMA and places like this. And they had, they were a ton of art buyers. He's got about 120 families. I'd reach out to him too. You can use mm -hmm. my name. And you guys have, you know, when, when things settle down a little bit, you guys also have a community and events and stuff too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, so I mean, those last year we did 82 events. That's, that's amazing. And you guys are all over pretty much, right? Yeah. Yeah. So those are great. I think one thing that you'd probably agree with me on is um, just be selective which events you go to, because probably those massive 2000 people conferences, it could be a lot of service service providers. Um, so I guess you want to make sure that it's uh, curated. I want to say one thing about service providers. Yeah. <laughs> because I, I will tell you, um, when I was a fund manager, mm -hmm. uh, you know, look, I would find my deal flow the normal way, but every yeah. little while I'd meet like an accountant in Oklahoma. Yeah. And he would say to me like, you ever hear of this company called Uber? Like, you know, when it was like, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, I just, you know, it's funny. I actually, uh, I try to keep my events 70, 30, meaning 70% yeah. allocators, 30% service providers, because if you are truly in the mode of finding deal flow, mm -hmm. you could find amazing deal flow from service providers. Yeah. Anybody that says different isn't, doesn't really know about trying to find good deal. That's flow. a good point too, because you never know who you can meet. And a lot, if you are a service provider, you're super connected, right? Because that's your whole bread and butter, right? Building those relationships. So and I I'll think that's a good point. In the family office space, mm -hmm. a lot of families are sneaky and they don't want you to know who they really are. Yeah. And so sure. you'll literally get a family. Oh, I'm a janitorial company. Meanwhile, the guy's got like, you know, every contract in Chicago. Yeah. And he's worth like 500 million. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I would say never, at, I don't, my mother would use the term poo-poo, yeah. never poo-poo anybody. So Yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah, I think, um, I think uh, you know, you always have to treat everybody the same. And, um, right. you know, if you go to conferences, uh, you never know who they know. You know, exactly. I mean, I've actually ran into some weird situations in my life where, it was, it, it was good though, but I met somebody and they randomly knew somebody that I grew up with. So imagine if you like screwed somebody over when you grew up yes. and then, you know, they met this person, you know, so I think you're right. I mean, just treat everybody no matter who they are with respect. And, um, but yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah. I think if you do have a good mix of service providers, um, it's helpful because you're going to need a lawyer or an accountant, right? And it's, if you can find somebody that's a recommendation, you know, that'd be helpful. So yeah. Um, Lisa, I think I see Lisa with her hand up. I guess, Lisa, do you have a question or is that an accident? Yes, I do. Oh. No, I raised my hand. Oh, hi, hi, Joel. Nice hey, to hear hey. you again. Stephen, yeah, nice to meet you. Um, Stephen, I do appreciate um, you talking about relationships with your, with your clients. And I have a very simple question. What would you say is the, the average amount of time that you've maintained relationships with your clients, if that's not too general a question. Meaning like number of years? Number of years, yes. Uh, I, I, you know what, Lisa, I pride myself on, my grandfather used to say, never burn a bridge and no yeah. matter what happens. And I, I, I'm sure I have 20 and 30 year relationships. Mm -hmm. I'm old, so. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and it helps me. It helps me, yeah. I, you know, I, I, there's no question that if I continue to maintain those relationships, one day mm -hmm. it will come back to me in business. Yeah. No, I agree. I totally agree with that. I think uh, hopefully you can have a lot of great lifelong relationships. Sometimes they don't work out, but yeah. I, mean, yeah. I, I totally By the way, Lisa, that. that's a great question. That's a good one. Cool. Anybody else? Don't be shy. Dead silence. Okay. Um, all right. Well, hey. Pleasure. Really yeah, this was a lot of fun. <laughs> Happy Friday, Stephen, and uh, enjoy the holiday with your family. Thank you. Yeah, all right. Happy Friday. Take care. Yeah. Bye, guys. See ya.